Thanks very much, Stephen and Tim. And uh, thanks for your children in advance. Look forward to seeing who turns up. Uh, there were a number of people last week who I asked to uh, do this time tomorrow, and they said yes. And I'm just scanning the congregation. There's a couple of people shrinking down. Uh, so if we really do get stuck for time, uh, we'll come back to that one. Matthew 6 has been about how we work out what it means to belong to God's kingdom in the world. And the challenges that we've been thinking about over the last number of weeks are how we practice spiritual disciplines like giving and praying and fasting without being hypocrites. And that certainly is one reason a lot of people give for not seeing Christianity as viable and credible. And one phrase that David has used has been a great summary, and it's on the screen. Living for an audience of one. And today we're going to pick up this theme from Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. And we're going to think about money. And the same principle applies. It's not about gaining reward from other people. But it's letting God see how I live as a citizen of his kingdom in the world of economics and material things. And uh, the reward issue plays a huge part in what we're going to think about this morning. We'll read the passage in a few minutes. But Jim Elliott is a name I'm sure many of you will recognize. And he's somebody who wrote an entry in his journal on the 28th of October 1949 that summed up his view of how to live for an audience of one. And there's a a copy of his journal which says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Famous words that have resonated in the hearts of so many people and sent many more people after this lifestyle of living for an audience of one. Elizabeth Elliot wrote Through Gates of Splendor all about this uh, lifestyle. But she also wrote a a book before they were married called These Strange Ashes. I don't know if any of you have read this book, but it's a book about the year before they were married when Jim spent that year in a remote part of the Amazon cutting down trees, preparing to build a house for them to go and live in. Elizabeth worked with a tribal group who had no written language, and she produced a manuscript of all the sounds, the words, and their meanings. And at the end of that year, a flash flood swept through that part of the jungle and washed completely away the house that Jim Elliot had been building for them to go and live in. And as Elizabeth Elliot was traveling back on a bus to meet Jim before they got married. With all this work that she'd been doing, her suitcase was lost off the bus and a year's work seemed to be wasted. But at the end of the book, she includes this made-up story 
about Jesus and his, his disciples, which explains her thoughts about a wasted year. This is a presse of the story. Jesus asked his disciples to carry a stone for him. And the story goes that John chose a large one and Peter chose the smallest. And Jesus led them up to the top of a mountain and he commanded that the stones be made bread. This is not scripture. I just want to be clear about this. This is Elizabeth Elliot's story. And they were tired and hungry and they were allowed to eat the bread that they had in front of them. And you can imagine Peter's disappointment. Next day, they're led to walk along a river and Jesus again asks them to pick up a stone to carry for him. So this time, Peter picks up the biggest stone he can carry and uh, carries it through a long and tiring day. And that evening, Jesus tells them to throw their stones into the water and they look at one another bewildered. For whom, asked Jesus, did you carry the stone? And motives and reward are a big part of today's passage. Two people can do exactly the same thing and look equally virtuous to outsiders, to onlookers, and yet they might be entirely different from God's perspective. We know that from the story of Samuel as he went to Jesse's house. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Chapter 6 has been saying, don't do your religious deeds for others because that reward is used up and it's pretty poor anyway. It's not worth very much. And yet I still find myself hoping that people will notice my service and I'll be rewarded with their approval. Giving, fasting and praying for the hypocrite's reward may appear similar to those activities done for the audience of one. The difference is about motives and rewards. For whom are you carrying the stone? But this is not about snipping ourselves out of the equation. This is not about saying, it's not about me. This passage, the way it seems to work, is about keeping ourselves in the picture. The teaching of Jesus is about a kingdom that is totally satisfying. And the first three activities hold some prospect of immediate reward if it's done for, for others. People say, wow, what a great Christian. But you might think, well, I'm not really interested in craving a reputation of a righteous person. I don't really care, to be honest, what the person beside me thinks. But wealth is different. There's nothing that has more force than money and possessions, whether we have obvious wealth or not. It is a, a false notion that money is a Western materialistic issue. It affects everyone. I remember when I worked with OM in India, our whole speciality as OM in India was sacrificial living. And we were 
pumped up by examples of people like George Verwer who sold his suit to buy diesel to get in a truck to go to Mexico. And that was the whole culture of the organization at the time. But every time I drove to Nepal, two things that my Indian teammates asked me for every time were Coca-Cola and Levi jeans. And they were just like me. I had another picture here, but we'll come back to that. And these things are just the materialistic issues that all of us want to be a part of. Coca-Cola wasn't available in India in 1981, so Campa-Cola was a, a very poor substitute to walk around with a Coca-Cola can. was being cool. <laughs> Nothing unmasks our true spiritual condition, like our attitude to money and possessions. These things reveal our hearts. And having had time to think about this week, it is difficult to address because I have a lurking fear that the consequences of this might be too much. And it is a good indicator that it has a grip on my heart and on my mind. But it's also a message that Jesus puts a high priority on. And so I'm privileged to speak about it. And I want to be more influenced by this radical teaching than by the ideas of materialism. So let's turn to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 24. And it's on page 971 in the Pew Bibles. <coughs> Treasures in heaven. <coughs> Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one. And despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. These six verses teach one main point, and I think it's this be wholehearted. That's the message. And the biggest threat to that is our attachment to material things. And maybe that's all we need to say. Go home and think about it. Jesus forbids what John Stott calls the materialism that tethers our hearts to the earth. But let's look at this passage 
going the wrong way here. I'm going to mention a book as well. I, I got a book this week, and I've got four or five copies of it. And this book will change your life. I have no doubt about this, because this week I've been absolutely blown away by it. It's six ninety nine. It would be an investment that I think will really affect your whole thinking on this subject. So, in order to kind of be in keeping with the theme of uh, giving, I'm giving you five pounds bargain, okay? So, I, d- I don't want to go home with any of these. If you want it on Kindle, you can get it for 4 84 so you can, you can save 16 pence if you're uh, not wanting a hardback copy. But uh, this is the message this morning. And it does affect our hearts deeply. And I'm just praying that as I speak, God would speak to me and speak to each one of us through this challenge. And uh, verses 19 to 24 say, Material possessions appear so substantial and lasting, but they will be lost. And so the challenge is to understand what is worth investing in. What should we be putting all our effort into? And to choose wisely because at the end of the day, we're giving our heart to this. And then the following three verses show from three different angles just how important this wholehearted commitment is. And it ends with stark words that cannot be misunderstood. You cannot serve God and money. Of course, there's lots of ways in this, in ways in which this teaching has been misunderstood and twisted and adapted to different situations. For example, it's not a communist manifesto. The communist mistake was to assume that different levels of income was the biggest hindrance to utopia and would all be happy when the class system was smashed and we were freed from the present economic hierarchy. Marx seemed to believe in the kingdom of God, but he didn't believe in God and said it was the system that was responsible for the sin and the evil in the world. He saw the problem was the lack of economic power for people rather than the selfishness of the human heart that led to evil things being done. But Jesus places the human heart dead center in diagnosing the problem of evil. And we see that in these verses. It might be easy to spot the weaknesses and blind spots of other systems, but what do these verses say to us? What about the lifestyle and the choices of those of us who say, as we have just said together, our Father, and pray for his kingdom values to be on display here? Well, there are two attitudes to see and two dangers to avoid. And the first attitude is that we are too easily pleased. Far from being this about self-denial, snipping ourselves out of the picture, suppressing our hunger for the good life. Here Jesus tells us what lasting pleasure looks like. The argument is based on the principle of the greatest reward 
rather than making us feel guilty for having small rewards. Have you ever had the experience of watching something you've worked for fade away? Maybe it was the guys who were down here yesterday as we have been uh, coping with a fire next door in the SELB building, watching something just disappear, or my pension pot, which twice seemed to nosedive, and I was told, well, there's really not a lot of point in uh, worrying about that because it's not going to be worth very much. And the point here is not about neglecting responsibilities or uh, about being unrealistic, but it is about avoiding a far greater loss by hoarding stuff that won't keep. And the Bible is full of wisdom about looking after our family, about being responsible for our obligations and ensuring that we plan for the future. But the issue is one of settling for immediate rewards in the present when they cannot deliver the real rewards that our hearts are looking for. Just like the applause of people that can so quickly fade. So if we invest too much in possessions, we lose out on the greatest rewards. It is awful to see the devastation that this week has brought on many homes and livelihoods in the south of England. And there is a real need there that requires a caring and a generous response. But surely the challenge of hanging on to our possessions that can't satisfy is equally sad. Because it has eternal consequences. We're too easily pleased. Moses, we're told, left the pleasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. Hebrews 11. Solomon, the richest man ever, learned that affluence doesn't satisfy He said, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. But why is it that we keep getting fooled? Because our hearts yearn for treasure now. We're tempted to imagine that we see earthly treasures around. They're the genuine items rather than just shadows of the real thing. So what's the cure? Well, Paul writes in 1 Timothy Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides with everything for our enjoyment. He goes on to say, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of life that is truly life. That's the reward. He was expounding Matthew 6 for people who were in danger of settling for less. And Jesus, when he wrote to the church in Laodicea, who said, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. He said their spiritual poverty was covered up by their material wealth. And he offered them real treasures. He says, I counsel you to buy from me 
gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, salve for your eyes so that you can see. So if Moses and right through these heroes of the scriptures urge us to think about lasting joy and reward, surely we should be asking ourselves, what are we doing to get past this shadow to the reality? C.S. Lewis put it this way. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink, sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. And this message says, don't settle for less. There's something much better than going away from Jesus sad because we love our mud pies too much or investing our lives in building a house that's foundation is sand. So what is going for this kind of reward look like? What does this say to us? When you meet a financial planner to talk about that pension pot that just seems to be disappearing through your fingers, <clears throat> they advise you not to look at three months ahead or three years ahead, but 30 years ahead and, and plan for the long term. Jesus offers rewards and he urges us to think ahead, not 30 years, but 30,000 years and for all of eternity. So what does that mean? What does that look like? It's the opposite of storing up treasure on earth. So it's a warning against accumulating more and more, bigger and bigger, better and better. There's nothing wrong with making lots and lots of money. What is wrong is keeping lots of money. We may think it's just extra security. It's something else I can fall back on. But this radical teaching calls it a liability and a danger. So the only way to invest what we don't need is to let go of it. That's what Jesus is saying. So a question I need to ask myself is, what am I hanging on to that's robbing me of present joy and future reward? And that's a question that I find very searching. Oscar Schindler was uh, made famous in the film Schindler's List. He made a lot of wise choices with his money and the influence that he had in order to save people from the death camps. But he was so convinced by the value of this that he looked at everything differently. And he had this gold pin and a car. And he said, this gold pin... That could have been two people. No longer was a thing of value to him. It was a symbol of what it could have been had it been used better. He longed to have made other choices, even with these material things, having given away so much. 
as we think about making better choices. It's not something we can answer for anybody else. It's not about comparing lifestyles and saying to anyone that you're holding on too much or you're giving away too much. It's about living to please an audience of one, being willing to ask him to open our eyes, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, see what I'm investing in, help me to see what will reap greater joy and eternal rewards. Two attitudes of believing we're offered more and entering into the joy of letting go by storing up rewards in advance. But what about the dangers? This passage has dangers as well. And there are two dangers I want to highlight. One directly from Matthew 6 and one that flows from it. And the first is that holding on risks being a slave to wealth. And the second, that others will suffer because of what I withhold. And you can apply these yourself. But the first says that the risks of ownership are that they become controlling influences in my life. Solomon said, there's another serious problem I've seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. And there is a real risk involved in hanging on to too much. We talked to friends about this recently and the question was, how does a new carpet bring greater cares? Getting into dangerous territory here. It wasn't a conversation about being frugal, but it was about how we suddenly become worried that we'll spoil something so attractive when we get something new. And the author of this book, his attitude was, every time my wife and I buy something new, we say to ourselves, it's going to go away from us. We'll lose that as well. For worrying about things spoiling, surely that's a good indication that our possessions are possessing us. It'll seem different for different people, but for me, the emblems of wealth seem to open doors that are very appealing. And I see an influence at work in my life as I look at other people because of what I have. Like every time I visited Peru 20 times in the last 10 years, my ability to use my relative wealth to travel give me the sense of power. Even carrying an iPhone or a good camera seemed to get the kind of response, this guy is savvy. He knows what he's about. If you walk to certain parts of Lima, they let you buy if you're dressed as we're dressed. They'll stop you if you're from the slum. And I can be excited by these elms, emblems of wealth and think I can do anything. I'm free, but I'm just controlled by them. And Jesus says in this same chapter, look at how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his splendor was not dressed like one of these. He says, I'm able to give you far more joy and influence so let the treasure flow through you. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of this risk. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. 
That's what we have. That's what's on offer. This chapter is an explanation of how we should not hoard wealth when we're promised the kingdom. Our Father loves us. He wants to give us this kingdom. And the answer is to spend it on people who can't give back. The second danger follows that. And here I want to think about what this means for us as a church. Others will suffer because of what I withhold. It'd be very easy to go on a guilt trip here. But there are many who are making tough decisions about their family budget. And what I keep in reserve could keep them in groceries. And so storehouse at the end of every month is a great visible reminder and an opportunity to direct our reserves in a way that's going to be good for us as well as for others. Here's another version of this to think about. By focusing and holding on to what we have in the present could rob this community of blessing and the next generation of a church that cares for their spiritual needs. We see a trend on the Lisburn Road and we hear the call to give a lead as the strongest church in this community. And the trend is that spiritual life is disappearing and somebody needs to get out there and live out new values. So what about this? How does this apply to us as a church? Here's some thoughts, brief summary of where we've been. I haven't run it past the elders. It may be totally heretical, but you can tell me about that later. In 1988, we as a church decided this was the place to stay and we should be a community-facing church and witness. In 2002, we bought ground next door and thought we'd really be... uh, giving the next generation an opportunity to develop that site. But the generosity that poured out following that in the subsequent years as people were motivated to give and God brought more people to Windsor allowed us to get to a stage where we drew up plans, thought this building is not big enough, we need to have something better. And then three years ago, an idea was launched to clear the final debts and get a deposit for the next phase. That's where we're at. Two years ago, we didn't see that response. And we decided we needed at least to make this a bit more habitable, which is great, and it's, uh, it's good to have it. an attractive building. and Nothing wrong with that at all. But we're at the point where we need to move on to the next stage. That's where we are. We're constrained right now. And something the elders have been praying about is what should that next stage look like? The development team will be coming back with more proposals soon. And we're not launching an appeal today. But as we look at these biblical principles, surely there's a spiritual and a practical response that God is calling us to as a church as we think about where we're at. Perhaps the challenge today is to be prepared to give more and to ask God, how are, we going to get, how are we going to let go of more in order to invest in what he is doing here in our doorstep and also globally around the world? I have to say, this is a church that excels in the grace of giving. 
So it's a bit like saying to Oscar Schindler, you should have given that gold pin. That's not the uh, challenge this morning. I'm just taking this passage of scripture and saying nothing new to us, but saying we should be avoiding laying up treasures on earth. Neither am I saying laying up treasure in heaven is about putting up a new church building. Let's not be mistaken by that either. That's not the full answer to Matthew chapter 6. It may be one small part of it. And if you have to choose between giving to the poor and investing in the development fund, then give to the poor. But this message is about receiving a reward now or living for a kingdom that will only get better. So what's the conclusion? The the attitudes to cultivate are to desire more, not less, and to make sure that we send it on ahead so that we're moving towards our reward rather than moving away from it. The dangers are that we'll suffer if we cling on to the present and others will suffer if we're not prepared to share God's property anyway. But maybe we're saying this is too far removed and we have so much to let go of. This is too big a step to take. Was that not the reaction of the rich young ruler? He went away sad. But our heavenly father is pleased to give us the kingdom. And he calls us to turn around and to reorientate our lives in a different direction. To stand still because the end is too far away is to miss the point that discipleship is a journey. It's been said that materialism is the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions of people in our world today, including many in the church. So two things to take away are, you cannot serve God and money. And be wholehearted before your audience of one. I'm going to finish with one verse from Malachi, which says, try this out. Maybe the journey is too much. Maybe you're wondering, where do I start? Well, God says through Malachi, test me in this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house Test me in this. Maybe just a very small test. But test me in this. Says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. And pour out so much blessing. That there will not be enough room to store it. As we ask God, to open our eyes to see what he has given us. 
My prayer is that I would see my possessions as his possessions and be released from the kind of slavery to possessions and see it as an opportunity to build his kingdom. Lent is just a couple of weeks away. It's a time to re-examine our affections and we hope to offer some more material to consider through these 40 days towards Easter. So that's another application as you get a copy of this or get some more material printed from this as we head towards Easter. Thank you.